Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest and good friend of mine, Nick Batia. Nick's the author of Layered Money, as well as he also now has launched his first uh, newsletter. So this is something that I will definitely get into. How's it going, man? What's up, Will? Good to see you, dude. Not too much. Not too much. Uh, I guess we can start with what have you kind of been up to lately? What have you been working on? Where's kind of like your mind space been the last couple of weeks to months? Yeah, so I published Layered Money in January. So, um, you know, around the summertime, once I was done doing my first, you know, wave of promotion, major promotion for the book, I wanted to get back into writing and I was trying to figure out what to do. What should I write a second book? And, uh, you know, circling a lot of the on-chain analysis that you, you're doing. That's how we first started talking. And um, ended up with this Substack publication, the Bitcoin layer, because you know, Bitcoin is now, I didn't want to wait another year or two to engage with the readers. And so the goal with the publication is put out content every week or so, engage with the community. What are you guys, what do you guys want to read about? What do you want to theorize about? And, um, you know, it's a, it's a Bitcoin focused uh, publication with the idea that Bitcoin will be the world reserve currency one day. It's a, it's a very high conviction publication in that nature. What we're doing is narrating it and analyzing it as it happens in real time. So that's what I've been up to. I'm just trying to come up with ideas, listening to readers, um, you know, DMing and emailing readers back and forth. And, you know, what do you guys want to hear about? And then I get to my notepad and, you know, start jotting things down, go for drives, come up with ideas. And then, um, you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, onto writing at night. Yeah, totally. So I, I want to ask you, like, now that we, you know, we both have our own uh, newsletter and, and you read, I mean, you wrote a whole book. So how, how has the process of writing kind of um, been helpful for you or, you know, what are kind of the pros and cons to it? Um, I've definitely like shared some of my thoughts before, but um, I'm sure people want to hear what you have to say. I know, like, you know, writing a book must have been a crazy intense process and, and really long process, very tedious. So uh, kind of like walk us through how that's kind of helped your, your framework of thinking in general. So as you know, I'm, uh, I come from the asset management industry. I was a bond trader. So th that's the furthest thing away from being a writer. You know, you're, you're in the numbers, you're doing math, you're in Excel, you're in Bloomberg all day long. There's no writing component to it. Um, but when I started be becoming a rate strategist, not just a rates trader, someone who has to articulate why we're going long or short, I really started to get into writing. And um, then when I you know, fell in love with Bitcoin, I wanted to communicate that. Like, how do you uh, translate this amazing thing into, into words? And how do you advocate for a long position, basically? Um, so that, it, it, that's really at the core of my writing. It's the long position is Bitcoin and the why is what motivates me and what drives me. So, um, you know, becoming a writer from a, from a math person, from a bond trader has been a long process. It's kind of surreal to me that I'm a writer. I don't think, I still don't really almost think of myself as that. Um, but it is it is the path that I've chosen, and I do I do love it because you're formulating thoughts. I want it's my mission to teach, and I want to explain why we need Bitcoin. It's 
moved away from the long position. You know, that was at the beginning. You go long, you want to explain why. But I believe Bitcoin is a force for good for the world and uh, why it should exist, why it should be around and why it's exciting, why it's a game changer, why it makes obsolete a lot of the financial industry overnight, why Satoshi was a genius and uh, you know, all these things, there's, you know, 7 billion people out there. And I think that, you know, the more that I write, the more people I can reach and teach about Bitcoin and why it's special. When you were putting the book together, like kind of walk me through what, what was your like day-to-day process? Did you like wake up every morning, kind of gotten like a routine where, you know, for me personally, you know, when I work, I usually kind of get in these like uh, what's it called circadian rhythms I probably said that wrong but you know you're just like in this mental flow where it's like your brain knows okay at this time of the day you're doing this and it kind of associate like just walk us through did you have that with with writing was it just like spurious you just oh I have this thought now I'm going to go write it down we researching all day I mean just just I'll kind of give you the floor just talk through that whole thing yeah so I wanted to write a book about bitcoin for a couple years And when the pandemic happened, the opportunity just presented itself that you can, you have the opportunity to completely shut off the world right now, leave every job that you have, leave every obligation that you have and write and finally write this book. So, you know, that was, you know, kind of March when I made that decision, April, I said, okay, I got to start writing this book. And Uh, you know, a wise person once told me great writing starts with great reading. So the process started with reading at night, Um, in bed, late night, reading financial monetary history. Where do I start the story? Trying to figure out, because I knew the end of the story is Bitcoin. Where is the beginning of the story? Uh, Is it 10,000 years ago? Is it 1,000 years ago? Is it 100 years ago? That process was like a lot of reading. European history, uh, that kind of stuff. And I settled on uh, basically the 13th century Florence to start the story. Um, And then as far as the rhythm, you know, um, it, I did have like a, like a morning session and an afternoon session for the first several months of, of, of writing the book. The nighttime was for reading and formulating the thoughts. And then the daytime was for grinding, just grinding through the story. It was like basically bullet points the first, the first uh, time around. Um, first, you know, call it three, four months of the process was that. Then I switched gears to write, like truly writing the book and making it a story um, after the, all the research and the grind was done. And that switched to night nights basically so i would try to get in a morning session um a really good morning session of writing and you know getting the words out there but um all the fruits came at at night and that so it's like 9 p.m to uh 2 a.m about that window for uh call it september october november of 2020 um that's when the book you know came together um and so that that was the process uh the research and then the making it. And when I'm writing the Bitcoin layer, I'm writing a lot of the times at night uh, because it's it's where I find the rhythm to find the story. The thinking I can do during the day, the bullets of you know writing down in the pad, 
all that kind of stuff. So, but uh, for just for some reason that the house is quiet, there's just me and my laptop. I oftentimes just turn the Wi-Fi off. So, um, you know, there's nothing else. Yeah, totally. It's funny, like when I write my newsletter, man, I, I started at like 12 a.m. sometimes and it's just like I'm up till 2 or 3 a.m. writing it. But I, I, I completely agree with you. It's just like it's complete silence and you're just like wired in on what you're doing. Um, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but what do you think like the main differences are between writing the book and the newsletter? And do you have one that you think is, is better or that you prefer to do or is just different? You know, thinking about a second book really puts that into perspective. Um, you need an idea that uh, is so intense to write a book that uh, you can't force it. And, um, you know, thinking about writing a book about on-chain or value Bitcoin or what that means, um, you know, I, I realized that I need, I need, I probably need two years to formulate this idea. So it's just a completely different ballgame to write a book. Um, if you haven't written a book yet, I would just like if, you know, to someone like you um, or analysts out there that are thinking about it, if you haven't written a book yet, the first one is easy from that perspective because you're putting everything you've ever felt into one project. But I already put out layered money. So coming up with a second book, I have to basically start from scratch to come up with something amazing and worthwhile to write a book about. So the Bitcoin layer is probably my exploration into what is the next book. And it's at least a two to three year commitment to this project itself to flesh it out. And so you guys, you know, subscribers, subscribers will see in real time, what are the ideas that are really driving me and the reader? And, you know, how is the story evolving with Bitcoin? And, you know, also, you don't want to write a book in a bull market. That's the other thing. Like, uh, uh, that's something that, you know, I feel, you know, let the bull market pass, then we can write the book in the bear market as uh, the narrative gets to consolidate along with the price. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, the, the other thing I kind of wanted to, to pivot to was like, now we've talked about the book, but or in the newsletter, but, you know, I kind of want to give the audience kind of a brief, brief at least overview of your background in terms of, uh, being a bonds trader and then also teaching a class on on bonds uh, just kind of like give this high level we don't have to go into too much of the nitty-gritty because I know you have on like some previous podcasts but um, just kind of give the high level of your background in that sense yeah so I was in the asset management industry for several years I was a U.S. Treasuries trader and a rate strategist um, basically means I'm on a you know a, a large investment team that is managing institutional money for very large you know institutions so we're talking about the top corporations and top public entities like state and federal national governments um and so and i'm trading you know i'm a fiduciary on their behalf those large clients and trading with the street and uh managing their their uh, bond portfolio so and it's me and, and a huge team and so at the beginning i was just uh you know, more of a papers pusher. Then I was an executions trader where, uh, you know, execution trader where people are telling you what to do and you're just hitting the button. Then it's like, what do you think about rates? Where are they going? And you're actually starting to write at the same time and put out ideas and recommend long or short, flatter or steeper in the curve. 
And a rates trader, really, and a rate strategist, uh, his or her job is to analyze the global macro economy. Where is the economy going? And where are US rates going? What is the Fed going to do in 3, 6, 12, and 24 months? And being able to predict that was part of my job. And it translates into Bitcoin, too. So here I am watching the yield curve flattening aggressively. And I wrote that you know, for your audience uh, last week. And um, it's telling you that the Fed is going to be raising rates sometime in the next 12 months. It's going to be a mistake. And the economy is going to slow down on, you know, on the back of that. It might sound to the average person like I'm making some you know, grand projection one to two years out, but a rates trader, they're just looking at the yield curve and telling you what's happened in the past. When yield curves collapse like they do, it means policy error. It means the Fed is raising rates, they're tightening financial conditions into a weakening scenario, and they're going to basically cause uh, a slowdown in the economy. Um, so, you know, my background is analyzing what the Fed is going to do because what the global economy is doing. And uh, somewhere along the way, when I found Bitcoin, I identified it right away as a, another global macro asset. And um, pretty soon, you know, I realized that it was definitely going to be the most important one for my lifetime. Um, and so, you know, you skate to where the puck is going. That's why I left the bond industry for Bitcoin, because I knew that Bitcoin is going to replace so many things over the next, you know, couple decades. And so that's where I want to be. But the bond industry is still, um, you know, a big part of how the world works still. And imagining how we transition from the current world into a Bitcoin world is is a challenge because it's not going to happen overnight. So that's part of why I want to write about you know things that have to do with Bitcoin becoming the world reserve currency. And then teaching at USC, Marshall School of Business, has been an honor. Uh, they basically you know uh, gave me the opportunity to teach the class after I came in and did a few guest lectures. I talked about the yield curve. I talked about the structural demand for duration, which means. Um, you know, the students wanted to make me a shirt that said old people, old people need 30s. You know, it's a way of saying that demographic demographics um, formulate a lot of the bond market uh, market structure. Why are 30 year US Treasury yields so low? Well, there's a permanent bid for the market. Right. And when people talk about rates going higher, I think this is why they hired me at SC. Everyone talks about rates are going to go higher because of inflation. It's been wrong for so long, right? Inflation and U.S. rates aren't as connected as people think. And uh, when I came in and was talking about how rates are going to stay low in the United States, most likely on a permanent basis because of demographic and other market structure reasons, and all the other reasons that have to do with the dollar denomination being weak and fragile itself. Um, that's why rates are low, because you have to buy treasuries to avoid the dollar exposure to every other counterparty. Um, so those topics are all still relevant. It's not just a Bitcoin world overnight and we can ignore you know, all these problems with the dollar. The dollar system is collapsing in slow motion. That needs to be narrated as well. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm at USC teaching bonds and teaching the rates market. 
We're going to dabble a little bit into cryptocurrencies because of uh, central bank digital currencies uh, come from Bitcoin um, inspiration. So I'm going to dabble in all that, but I'm, you know, working, you know, to try to get uh, more exposure to Bitcoin as well at the university. Awesome. I have found kind of a curveball question for you. So when we kind of think about this process of like hyper Bitcoinization, um, what do you think about kind of like a Bitcoin derived interest rate and, and, you know, a way to kind of value things based off of that? Um, I, I've, this is something I've tried to wrap my head around and kind of where this would be derived from. Um, do you have any thoughts on that and like how that perhaps maybe would play out? Yeah. So, you know, you guys talk about funding all the time and, you know, for my world, it's, funny you bring it up in my, I was thinking a lot about funding because um, you and Dylan are always, you know, citing the funding market, right? I'm learning from you guys. I'm watching you guys watch the market and learning about Bitcoin's market structure. Uh, funding dictates everything in the short term, right? Well, if you think about treasuries, repo, re, treasury repo is my world too. I was trading repo and, uh, you know, tapped into why treasuries move according to repo and how funding treasury repo funding affects the asset class itself and how it also tells stories about the asset class like when funding goes negative when funding is high um, when there's a funding squeeze all these funding issues um, in in bitcoin um, you don't have it as much but in in treasuries you have quarter end issues month end to a smaller extent, quarter end, and then year end issues where the calendar actually affects funding because of balance sheet strikes. Um, all of that stuff, um, you know, affects Bitcoin in a very in a material way. So I'm thinking about funding uh, and how, how we can get a funding rate from Bitcoin uh, through sorts of I mean start with how can we get an interest rate through for Bitcoin through all sorts of funding markets so um, like I've written about lightning network interest rates for a long time but that's not gonna that's not gonna tell you anything holistically about the asset class and how it trades and the need for the commodity right because funding is you're borrowing to get the commodity itself or exposure to the commodity itself that's why you borrow in Lightning Network routing, it's a different sort of activity that has less to do with the asset class it, uh, as a commodity and more to do with the time value of that commodity out in the capital market. So um, I know it's a it's a long answer, but yeah, I'm thinking about funding a lot um, and less so about Lightning Network, even though I think Lightning Network interest rates are very important to reference for like exchange, um, you know, deposit, Bitcoin deposits and things like that. Um, but I think exchange interest rate, exchange derived interest rates is where the action is at. We need, um, we need a clearer metric, right? Instead of just watching perpetual funding or just watching one exchange, you know, it's going on everywhere. That's the part of the challenge, right? You're talking about funding on this exchange versus that exchange, and uh, it's decentralized, kind of how the repo market works um, as well, why the repo market broke in September of 2019, because if one or two shops can't roll the funding, 
um, you know, their, their rate breaks and it trickles down into everything else. So um, there's a lot of parallels there and uh, Bitcoin funding levels is something that I definitely need to do a lot more research in. And I'm hoping that you guys keep putting out content on that and explain it to newbies like us because we, we need to think about it together. Uh, what, you know, what the signals are from funding, because you can pick up the quickest signals, right? And be like, oh, market's going to flush. And it flushes. It's very obvious because it gets, uh, you know, funding goes really, you know, sky high and, you know, the borrow is too expensive. It can't sustain itself. Boom. And it's over. So, um, yeah, I want, I want to keep learning from, from you and, 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 you know, understand funding holistically. Totally. When you think about, you know, this is something you've, you've said often is that Bitcoin isn't just going after gold. Like, I think that's kind of like, you know, given, right. It's what, what Bitcoin's really going after is the bond market. Uh, and so when you kind of think through that process, what are some of the kind of like, I don't want to say milestones, but what are some of like the cracks that you see forming in terms of that, that, you know, damn kind of breaking over, um, you know, just like, that whole process in, in theory and, and, you know, how are things set up now for that to kind of take place? Yeah. So let's separate the hedge funds from um, the, what we call um, LDI or um, which is um, basically you're talking about asset liability management. You're talking about insurance companies that have to buy bonds that have these mandates Um you're talking about banks that need bonds for their risk-weighted assets. You have all these structural players in the bond market. I think that hedge funds that have done rates trades are already well into the Bitcoin market. And so that, like, I think that conversion has already happened, but the legacy bond buyer shifting into Bitcoin uh, and out of fixed income as an asset class, I think we are we're not that close to seeing that. And because if you think about, um, if you think about the, you know, insurance companies that have to own, and they actually don't even buy treasuries that often anymore, insurance companies are in the swaps market going receive 30-year swaps, which is when you receive in the swap market, it's going long duration, you're buying exposure to bonds, basically. And when rates go down, you make money. They are, they are actually a perpetual buyer of 30 and 50 year swaps. Um, they're just receiving every day in the market permanently. They need to do that because their liabilities are fixed in nature because their clients are old, older people that are retiring that need cash flow and um, off the back of that. So that's actually the generational transfer between, uh, you know, insurance uh, companies and, and retirees, that sort of bid is, I don't think it's coming into Bitcoin anytime soon. Then you have like this middle of the market where people are trying to get alpha, right? And that's where you're going to see the floodgates. You're that's probably where your question lies. It's like, what are going to be some of the telltale signs that we see that? Um, and that's going to, and that's really going to be, uh, when you look at multi, I would say if you look at multi-strategy uh, mutual funds that have exposure to fixed income and equities, they'll have a Bitcoin sleeve. That is going to be the first indication that you're actually going to see the 
fixed income asset class get reallocated into Bitcoin. Because in that way, the, the equity investors are more uh, capable and nimble than fixed income investors. So people that own stocks already own Bitcoin, let's say for the most part. Hedge funds that are in equities and let's say they're multi-strategy hedge funds, but they don't own any bonds. It's like equities and some commodities trades, total return trades, alpha trades, they're already long Bitcoin, right? So that it's not that, that uh, embedded bond bid that's ending there. But when you start to see that the 60, 40 guys go 58, 38, four, and the four is Bitcoin, um, that's, that's really the crack. And that's when you're going to see the floodgates open. And, um, you know, even, even that, I think, uh, is not right around the corner. You still have this flood of capital that's, call it hot money, equity money, hedge fund money, VC money, um, and, and young money too. It's, uh, this is people actually earning. It's not even just like rotating out of fixed income. You know, millennials, you know, your generation, I think you're not even millennial, you're below that. It's like, you guys are earning, buying Bitcoin spot, um, and never, never for a second are looking at, like once you get above the FDIC insured, amount, you're not looking at what 60, 40 portfolio to go in. It's like, should I put it all in Bitcoin or only 75% in Bitcoin and like try to own some stocks? So that's what this generation is doing. Um, and there's so much capital that we can go to, um, we could go to probably a million dollar Bitcoin before really cracking the fixed income uh, bid, cracking open that fixed income bid. That's really interesting. How do you think that uh, some of your previous colleagues, I'm sure you probably still keep in touch with a lot of these guys, um, you know, how, how have they reacted? Have, have they been kind of like welcoming Bitcoin with open arms? Is it difficult for them to, to wrap their head around it? Because I feel like, you know, to an extent, just from your background, if you hadn't, you know, understood how the system works, you wouldn't be as apt to understanding how Bitcoin could potentially be the solution. So uh, yeah. kind of walk us through like how people have been reacting to it. So generally, um, I have great relationships on the street and um, I love all those people. Um, I think the guys in fixed income and the women in fixed income on the street and my sales coverage is up in San Francisco, down here in LA. So um, the men and women in the bond industry are great people. I can just say that. And uh, a lot of them have gone long um, either before I wrote the book as I was talking about it nonstop or after I wrote the book, they bought the book, they send me a picture, they say congrats, they send me a screenshot of, you know, their XYZ first purchase um, or, you know, just like I went long, uh, you know, thanks for um, and all that kind of stuff. So I think in general, everyone see everyone is receptive to it. I think if you if you teach them about it and you show them um, what they're probably realizing now is that putting five grand into Bitcoin uh, was not nearly enough. And they made, they probably made an enormous mistake making a, an allocation that was less than 1% of their net worth. But the reason that they did that was because they felt comfortable with putting 0.4% of their net worth in Bitcoin. They were like, I can take a flyer on that. Um, now they're realizing, oh shit, I should have done 10% and, um, why didn't I make that? And now they're probably going to be doing more research on their own. So I don't, 
actually have, uh, you know, if either their subscribers, they read the book or they're doing their own like, um, okay. Uh, so JP Morgan has a guy named Josh Younger. Brilliant. He's actually like a rocket scientist that they hired away, you know, to come in and do rates derivatives and uh, like the swaps market master volatility master. Um, he's been writing about Bitcoin market structure for over a year uh, at JP Morgan, and they just promoted him from rates to like head of something, uh, head of, <laughs> you know, uh, so something important, something really important and a brilliant and brilliant guy. And, uh, and so like Josh doesn't need, you know, someone like me, he doesn't need to like be texting me. Right. And like, Hey, what do you think of Bitcoin? You know, he's, he's gone so far beyond. So the people that are intellectually interested in what, where the world is going, the signs have been on the wall for you know a long time and so they they have a lot of resources um you know the whole grayscale trade i think really woke people up into okay there's just like an arb trade it's kind of like a vanilla trade the underlying is bitcoin but whatever and you know it's forcing people to to get there so yeah i mean i i stay in touch with all these people and but it really is more still on a personal level because uh, they know that, um, you know, Bitcoin is, it's here. It's not like, hey, Nick, I, you know, uh, you've been talking about Bitcoin. I can't, that was four years ago uh, when they were texting me that stuff. Like, oh, dude, you've been talking about this. Like when it went to 20K, right? That's when it was texting. Now it's like Josh Younger has been writing about crypto market structure for a year. And, and so, um and uh, uh, so I think that I, I think that people underestimate how many people are long uh, out there, but everybody's under allocated. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, even Saylor you, would uh, probably say he would. <laughs> yeah, including you, me, and and Mike Saylor too. So um, we're all under allocated, and at, when you realize that, then the you know the correct trading um, strategy is to add in bull markets. So if you're in a multi-decade bull market, you should be adding all the time, uh, just like in the bond market, like when it sells off, you should be adding to the bond market because rates are still trending down over a long period of time. So you identify trends, the trend is up, people under understand that they don't get, uh, like at least people in my industry, they don't get shaken out by 60 to 30K like noobs do or people that aren't in trading or anything like that, just people that are new to this industry uh, where fear and panic takes over, um, you know, rates, people aren't like that at all. And so they'll wait for a cycle. They'll see the evidence. They'll look at the price and they'll understand, oh, 60K. Uh, yeah. You know, they were right about Bitcoin. It's going to keep, it's going to be 600K in a few years. So I need to get some and um, they're, and it's all in the price that that's why there are people in the market. You guys are looking closer. It's like, what kind of size, I'm sure we don't see a lot of it though, because it's, you know, it's on exchanges and, you know, they're just going long. Yeah, totally. So we've kind of talked about how the, the macro situation is favorable for Bitcoin. Can we just briefly uh, just talk about what would be the opposing view to that? You know, if someone was coming to you and saying, no, Nick, you're wrong. And this is why, what is, what is the main reasoning behind that? And then explain kind of the counter argument to that reasoning as to why that, that, that popular train of thought is actually incorrect. Well, 
anything can outperform Bitcoin if it attracts capital. And part of the way to attract capital is like higher interest rates, higher returns. And so, you know, if you start seeing the assets that are denominated in dollars have higher returns, it could, it could uh, hurt Bitcoin's value. Uh, the reason that Bitcoin goes up over a long-term time horizon is because the dollar and dollar assets have diminishing value, especially, um, you know, short, like if you keep your money in cash, right? Most people, they just earn and then they spend and that money goes to their checking account. The interest rate is at zero. Um, and the real interest rate is negative because there's inflation. That type of churn affects people's psyche. And they have to get out of that. So that's why they seek to buy. That's why they seek to gamble. That's why they seek stop the stock market, you know? Um, and so I think average people understand that need to not have cash because it doesn't do you anything. It actually does you harm to hold it. Um, and, you know, as long as people are making that assumption or that judgment, you'll always have that relative value trade. So you know, higher interest rates in the United States on fixed deposits, um, higher returns on capital, all that kind of stuff uh, comes with like a really um, sound and well-working financial system. So if all of a sudden the financial system were to repair itself, the Fed were to figure out some way to um, bring some transparent, you know, even the slightest bit of transparency back to uh, how credit markets are managed and how um, reserve ratios work around the world. The euro dollar system is another huge is another huge issue. We have this dollar system outside of the Fed, outside of the United States, that's you know kind of working all controlled by banks outside of the United States, running their own dollar ring. And um, how do you reel that system back in? And how do you offer it discipline? And how do you offer it higher interest rates? where we can, we can clearly see that when the Fed tries to, we only have one example of the Fed trying to raise rates. They did it from 2015 to about 2018, totally broke everything and rates collapsed back down to zero and they had to do another 4 trillion in QE. So if that's the one example that we have of them trying to fix the system by raising rates, then you know really good luck. But the answer to your question is, a dollar system that's fixed with higher interest rates. But I'm telling you, it's not possible. It's mathematically unsustainable to have higher interest rates in the dollar system because of how broken and fractured it is. That's why I wrote layered money. I had to show you guys, you know, the dollar system, the euro dollar system, it's all so broken. It cannot be held together. And so it just exists as a broken system. Bitcoin is the exit from that. That's why it appreciates value the long term. Amen, man. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, and, and then I kind of want to pick your brain about like recently in terms of macro, everyone's been talking about the whole Evergrande situation. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the market is overreacting, underreacting? You know, everyone on Twitter, every time there's some, you know, immediate news, just recency bias, people act like everything's always the end of the world. So I just kind of like walk us through your thought process on that. And, and by Every, the way, everybody, yeah. he, he, Nick, Nick put an awesome piece in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago. So be sure to check that out too. Yeah. I covered Evergrande uh, for Will's audience, um, you know, and the high yield index that we cited, which was at 13% um, has only continued to go higher in yield. So more and more risk being priced into the market. 
But here's the way I think about it. Everything is good for Bitcoin and nothing else matters because we're in Bitcoin now. So in Bitcoin, we're looking at broken fiat systems, right? Whether or not Evergrande's default causes a deflationary crunch in China because uh, you know defaults impair balance sheets and that causes losses, which causes people to get fired, which causes the economy to slow, or they get bailed out and you have more money sloshing around the system to uh, uses that were actually, you know, the wrong, it's the wrong place to put cap capital. We call that the misallocation of capital. That's what a bailout is. It's a misallocation of capital because you're rescuing something that's family. So I don't mean to, you know, like uh, skip the question, but it doesn't matter if Evergrande gets bailed out or defaults for Bitcoiners because either way, it shows you that the fiat denomination assets are risky or the fiat denomination itself is risky because they won't ever control the supply on it. Both are bullish for Bitcoin. People realize that now it's the same thing with the Fed. So um, it just it's just every time a company defaults, it shows you risk. And Bitcoin is the alternative to the risk. And it doesn't mean that the price can't, can't go up or down in US dollars. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. There is no risk. There is no counterparty risk. Take it off the exchange. There's no risk to you. And that is a dichotomy that has never existed ever. And um, it's why the price of Bitcoin is so potentially convex because um, you have everybody realizing the same thing at once, that there's only one thing that you can own in the world that avoids all risk and it's Bitcoin. Um, you know, it, 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 it's why you see parabolic advances in the price. Sure. And, and speaking of risk, uh, what are some of the biggest kind of tail risks that Bitcoin potentially faces? Um, like for me, for example, I mean, I'm not like the most technical person. So, you know, if there is some kind of flaw with the cryptography that for some year, for some reason over the 12 years that Bitcoin's existed, we didn't realize like that's one like blind spot for me that I acknowledge I have. Like, what do you what do you think through in terms of different risks that Bitcoin faces moving forward? Yeah, I, you know, I always I always say the same answer, Will. Like I always say the blind spot in the cryptography because I you know can't really vouch for SHA-256 myself. I'm not a computer scientist. Um, so, but I, I think now it's it's this idea of um, you know where's where's the price discovery happening? Um, I think that's probably the bigger risk. And so um, and, and, and part of that is these bull markets followed by these um, flushes. The more violent the flushes are, um, I think it does, you know, over the long term, it doesn't matter, right? But I think it, it does damage to, it just does damage to um, balance sheets and to psyches and then, you know, to the industry. And so, um, you know, Avoiding avoiding 80, 90% flushes, um, you know, it's probably healthier for Bitcoin. Watching its volatility come down is probably healthier for Bitcoin, but um, it still needs the volatility to keep that, um, to keep its edge. So um, it's, I wouldn't say that it's a, a, a risk or a blind spot, but it's just something that I'm watching for. 
you know, and, and, and hoping that maybe, you know, the next drawdown will be 60%, 70% and not 85, 90%, you know, going to 500K back down to 50K could be, could be, you know, it could just be difficult for the asset class um, uh, in, in its more mature phase. So, you know, I hope that the, the, the ups and downs are, 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 are mild from a relative perspective, right? I'm not, I'm not hoping for any kind of uh, smooth price action. Uh, I'm not an idiot. So um, it's just, uh, you know, spitballing here. <laughs> yeah, totally. What do you think about the four-year cycles moving forward? Uh, just, you know, just, just, just for the fun of it, uh, do you think we continue to see these very smooth kind of logarithmic curves as we go higher, or do you think we kind of become this more free flowing thing, especially as the asset matures and you see more, you know, macro, you know, investors or sovereign wealth funds investing that you know aren't looking to constantly, you know, sell the the intermediate top and buy back lower. You know, do you, yeah. do you think that kind of changes how I guess the market structure is shaped? Well, I think that the the 60 to 30 market this year tells us something. It tells us that um, it tells us that the bear markets might be shorter and more frequent than four years, because that felt like it felt like something a little bit more than just a mid consolidation of the bull market. It felt like an end of a bull run. It felt like a little uh, kind of, bear phase um, and then and then renewed. It just like felt a little bit longer. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I, I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, I, it's too early to say, but it might be, it might be that we're in for shorting, uh, shorter cycles, but, you know, it's, it's like kind of like a widow maker question because if you, if you make that bet, you know, then you're going to have to hold that bet into the next halving. And, uh, you know, then we're talking about the most fundamental of, of the whole, you know, the fu- most fundamental aspect of the whole algorithm ex- itself, which is the having and the supply schedule and how that feeds into everything. So to just dismiss the havings and the four-year cycle way too early um, to do that or for people to say that, you know, the four-year cycle is dead. I still think it's it's early to say that, but um, you know that's that's part of what that's part of why you know your analysis is so popular. It, it people want to know. It's not a it's not a question that only sophisticated Bitcoin investors are thinking about. Millions of people are thinking about: Is this a four-year cycle to repeat itself, or is it not? And how can we get signal from all the noise? And they're turning to on-chain. Totally. I mean, it, it's just weird that a lot of the, uh, I guess you could say, behaviors or patterns that we're seeing in, in terms of where we where we are theoretically if we were in a four-year cycle. And just that, like, for example, a lot of the hodling behaviors, um, you know, different measures. I mean, we're looking at, like, long-term holder supply, illiquid supply. We're looking at, like, destruction, showing the amount of old coins that are being spent. All those things are low at what you would usually see at like the bottom of a bear market, even basic things like hodl waves. Uh, when you look at like three months and, and three months and out, you have an all-time high in terms of supply that hasn't moved in at least three months. So like all of these different behaviors that you usually kind of see at the bottom of a, a bear or like a strong reaccumulation phase, um, to me, like those behaviors aren't 
resembling of, of anything that that's previously like marked, um, you know, where, where, where a lot of people think we are in terms of the four-year cycle currently. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see how it unfolds uh, moving forward. Last question for you. Uh, this is when I ask everybody coming on. It's, it's a bit more of a fun question, kind of theorizing about the whole hyper Bitcoinization that all the Bitcoiners like to like to talk about. Uh, what are some of the milestones that you think are kind of most important um, in terms of like minor, minor AOC or like AL Salvador and then B, like the politicalization of Bitcoin? Uh, what, are, what are some of those things that maybe like maybe other people aren't thinking about that you say, okay, you know, if, if this happens, then we're probably going to speed up this process a lot. And it's maybe something like people aren't thinking about. Yeah, it's uh, definitely um, international real estate and business transactions hitting the wire denominated in Bitcoin. Company A in Italy buys company B in France for, or that's probably a bad example because they're both using the euro. So Italy, you know, buys a company in Africa for, uh, you know, 3000 Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, Hilton buys a property in Indonesia for 25 Bitcoin. And that hitting the wire and that becoming normalized is the tipping point. That's where we're heading. I don't know how soon we'll get there and start seeing those headlines hit the Bloomberg wire. Um, but they're coming, those days are coming. And when they do, everyone will know that Bitcoin is, it's a world unit and uh, it's, and it, and it can be thought of as that. And um, so that's, you know, that's the type of activity that I'm looking for. It's, it's what I call, uh, you know, it's what I call the monetization event. How does it become money out into the world? We already know it's money because we already use it hand to hand as money. So we know it's money. Um, people that own Bitcoin, you know, and transfer Bitcoin to and from exchanges know that it's money because they, they use transactions, right? But when, uh, you know, big companies are buying other big companies and doing deals in Bitcoin, property deals in Bitcoin, real estate listings in Bitcoin internationally, because that's the better currency to do business in. Um, that's the monetization event that I am. That's what I'm here for, dude. That was awesome. That's probably the the most unique answer that we've heard yet. Never, never heard that before. So glad I asked, uh, Nick, this has been an absolute blast, man. I want to just give you an opportunity just to kind of like plug your newsletter in and anything else that you think people should be aware of, or if you have any final thoughts to kind of get off your chest before we wrap up. Great. I, I hope people will join me, uh, uh, at, on Substack at the bitcoinlayer.substack.com. That's my newsletter that I'm sending out. Um, and I have layered money on available on Amazon. It's also on Audible. Um, and I, I hope that you guys will, you know, check out the book and let me know what you think. Reach out to me on Twitter at time value of BTC. Absolutely. It's well worth subscribing guys to his newsletter. It's awesome. Uh, hopefully we can get him to do another uh, guest piece on ours pretty soon. Uh, and, and definitely check out Nick's book as well. I mean, Nick's book was one of the, the ones that really kind of kind of solidified my Bitcoin thesis last year when I started getting into Bitcoin as well. I think like, you know, that book and the Bitcoin standard and then like, uh, and boy, I would say those two are probably like the, the two, if I was going to like orange pull somebody and say, here, here's, you know, a couple books to read. So anyway, Nick, thank you so much once again. 
Um, hopefully we can get you on again in, you know, the coming months or whatever. Um, and, you know, I hope you take care, man, and uh, appreciate you coming on once again. Thanks, Will. Appreciate it, dude. Take it easy.